welcome to episode 67, the episode of love of Yukon <laughs> 360. That's the only podcast in the entire cosmos that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. Coming to you from the three corners of Connecticut, I am your facilitator of sorts, Tom Breen. Joining me, as always, are my colleagues, Julie Bartuka. It's always an episode of love. <laughs> so yes. And, well, this one will be love and psychedelia. Yes. And, and, and Ken Best. How you doing? I actually got to see Julie last week. In yeah. Person. We had a socially distanced little hangout. It was really nice. Wow. Well, thanks for inviting me, guys. It was, um, it was for somebody that's moving away. That's yeah. All. This is this is the last episode of UConn 360. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know Ken first. was going to be there, to be honest. I was very surprised. But it was, right by his, it was right by his house, so it made sense. Uh, well, no, that sounds very nice. Before this episode is over, I would just hope that both of you take the knives out of my back. <laughs> um, we've got a great uh, program for you, as always. As you're listening to this, it is the first week of classes in the fall 2020 semester. I don't know when you're listening to this. I mean, you could be listening to this hundreds of years in the future. Oh, uh, I hope you are. If so, future person, you know, forgive us. I am confident that you are listening to it after classes have begun. It's a very strange, unique semester in the history of the University of Connecticut because, of course, of the pandemic. We are literally giving the old college try uh, and hoping everyone is able to sort of stay safe and respectful of others while getting as much as possible of the traditional college experience. We'll see how it goes. Everyone is kind of making this up as they go along. We did well going into the start of classes, but of course everything changes once classes start. So, But we do have some non-pandemic news to talk about. Big milestone in UConn sports, actually. Is that, is that right, Ken? That is correct. Uh, Nancy Stevens, who has been coaching field hockey here for 30 years, out of her 43 years as a field hockey coach, and actually as a lacrosse coach as well. She coached both sports in, in her previous tenures elsewhere. As announced her retirement, uh, there is, of course, no fall season for sports, and that's when field hockey plays. And she was thinking about this for some time anyway, because she's been doing it for quite a number of years. She is going to still be around the program. She's going to be a volunteer. Her longtime assistant, Paul Caddy, is going to take over. He's one of the best coaches in the country as well as Nancy has been. Nancy's a Hall of Famer. She's played at the international level as a player and has coached at that level as well. She came here to succeed a classmate and teammate of hers, Diane Wright, back in 1990, who won the first two national championships in field hockey. And Nancy, in the last five years, has won three uh, national championships for UConn. In fact, Diane Wright's first championship was the first national championship. Uh, for UConn ever wow. back back in those days. She is leaving with a record of 700, 189, and 24 overall. She's the first field hockey coach to win 700 games. She was 520 and 139 and 8 here at UConn. This is a familiar record of sorts. 24 NCAA tournaments, eight, 18 NCAA quarterfinals, 10 semifinals, 19 Big East tournament titles and 19 Big East regular season championships. 51st team All-Americans. What does that sound like? Sounds like our women's, women's basketball. Right. Sounds like a dynasty is what it sounds like. And guess, they don't get enough credit over there in field hockey. And who was a contemporary of hers at Westchester State back, back then in Pennsylvania? Gina Oriema. They went to the same school. As did Diane Crazy. Wright. 
So we had three championship What did they put coaches. in the water out there, Westchester State? I asked that question of her, actually. And uh, <laughs> the answers will be in the UConn Today story. Well, we are going to miss her. She is an amazing person. I've never worked directly with her. I think I've emailed with her, but um, she's appeared in some of our videos. She's always a really good sport. One thing that really struck me is all the uh, current and former Daily Campus journalists who paid tribute to what a, a, a nice person she was and very understanding with sort of fledgling journalists mm-hmm. and kind of helping them out. And that that's not always the case at that level of college sports. So uh, that's, that's a tribute to her as well. Well, I got an education as well because I did not know a lot about field hockey when I started to cover the team many years ago. And uh, I learned about penalty corners and, and set pieces and all that stuff that you need to know to be a good <laughs> coach. And it helped me to be able to write and ask good questions about the game. Well, best of luck to Coach Stevens. And uh, I'm glad she'll be sticking around the program in a volunteer capacity. And now we turn from the, uh, the field of play to the field of mathematics. How was that for a segue? <laughs> Pretty smooth. On your game. Yeah. Ken has a very interesting story. You can read it on UConn today, but now you can hear it on UConn 360. It's an interesting topic about economics and math. Ken, tell us a little more. Yes, this is a new study that suggests low family income may be a factor in children's math skills when they enter school. Uh, The study appears in Child Development, which is the journal of the Society for Research in Child Development, and it was conducted by Human Development Family Sciences Professor Caitlin Lombardi and her colleague Eric Deering, who is an applied developmental and educational psychologist at Boston College. They studied mothers' support of their children's math learning at 36 months to measure the association between early childhood family income and children's counting and calculation skills at age four and a half years and between six and seven years. Uh, The study findings suggest that income-based gaps in counting and calculation skills when a child starts school may be due to the constraints that low family income places on early numerical learning support. Professor Lombardi focuses her research on the roles of family, early child care, and education for promoting children's cognitive and social-emotional development, particularly in the context of economic and social disadvantage. Uh, We began our discussion when I asked Professor Lombardi how the study will help to improve what we know about when children learn math skills. And I should note there's a data reference to SES, which is shorthand for socioeconomic status. What was one of the sort of really pressing questions in the field was the fact that it's very well documented that when children start kindergarten, right from entering in the fall, five-year-olds that there are just these very large disparities in their math skills. There's a huge range in what children's entry-level math skills are, as well as their reading skills. And it's very highly correlated with various aspects of home demographics, family income, parent education, and other characteristics of the home environment. And what researchers found, in fact, is that Once children get into kindergarten and through the elementary school years, of course, everyone's math skills develop, but those disparities don't close. Those gaps don't narrow. They are sort of kind of remain stagnant through those years. Of course, I don't know in the current situation, there's sort of evidence that in fact, they might be widening because of differences in the remote learning opportunities that children are having and obviously private tutoring going on and lack of educational technology on the other side. But stepping before that, there's already the disparities. Children entering this kindergarten this fall, regardless of what they've received 
for instruction have these big differences in math skills. And so a lot of the focus on math skills has been, of course, on curriculum and instruction and things like Common Core and different ways of how do we teach children math. But what we found is actually children develop a lot of math skills between birth and age five. There's evidence that among babies that children sort of already come out from their very first months on earth being able to understand differences in quantity in small subsets, just in sort of one to three, knowing different, the differences in those small subsets. And through this time period of zero to five, they develop a lot of math skills in different areas in around sort of understanding numbers and quantity, the fact that numbers are attached to quantity in spatial skills, in mental rotation skills. If we think of the different tools and toys that children use and are exposed to in these different environments. But a lot of our knowledge of math development occurs age five and above. So the goal of this study was to investigate what some of the reasons were for those disparities. And of course, we can pretty easily draw some conclusions from existing research. Well, it's differences in early care and education experiences, parental cognitive stimulation, just spending a lot more time talking to kids and interacting with children and providing them with more high learning opportunity materials, such as certain blocks and apps and games. And then meanwhile, in the math development world, there has been a lot of recent understanding of how parents support early math skills. This is sort of followed more behind some of our understanding of how parents support early reading skills. Combining those two areas of work, this research thought to, you know, investigate, can we identify some sort of specific ways that socioeconomic disparities are translated to children's development? What are some of the specific things going on in the home? Is it broad cognitive simulation or is it some sort of math specific aspects? You also touched a little bit on a spatial concept as another significant aspect of the early development in math skills. Could you explain what that is and how that works? Because without understanding it fully myself, I know there are different elements that go on. Yes. Thank you for also identifying this sort of important point. When we think of early math skills, usually we tend to think quickly about sort of numerical development numbers, learning numbers, learning to count, learning to add, subtract, moving on from there to sort of some higher level arithmetic. But broadly, math development also includes what we think of as spatial skills. And that's the ability that plays into later geometry skills and geometry subjects. But earlier, that's the ability to sort of rotate shapes in our mind, mental rotation skills. It comes into play because the idea is that the combination of numerical skills and these spatial skills and mental rotation skills come together for children being able to solve math problems in their heads without needing to count for example. So even the idea, if you think of, say, an addition problem using like a number line to solve an addition problem, that involves some sort of visualization of the different quantities and putting them together and being able to do that 
using your mental rotation skills and your mental visualization skills. One reason that researchers are really interested in spatial skills is, again, it's something that's not taught as much. Children get a lot of natural exposure with things like Legos and blocks and puzzles and some sorts of specific planning-related games. One big hypothesis in the field is that one reason that there are gender disparities in math skills, boys and girls enter, tend to enter kindergarten with similar skills. And then by the end of elementary school, boys have higher math skills than girls. There's a couple of explanations for that, some of which are sort of socialization around sort of expectations of boys and girls. But another component is is the idea that boys develop better mental rotation skills, even in their early years, in part because they're given more exposure to blocks and Legos and mental skill rotation building tools versus sort of more feminine type materials like dolls and so forth. And that those spatial skills become a strategy that children rely on to solve higher level arithmetic problems. What was interesting, I thought, was that the level of education of the mother didn't really factor in as much as you might have thought to the way that the child is learning, which is a very interesting revelation. um, That was really one of our most surprising findings. A lot of research in this area looks at an SES, what we call like an SES composite which is some sort of measure that includes family income, parent education, sometimes parents' occupational status, or other sort of measures of human capital, um, or parents, even parents' direct measures of parents' skills. We use mothers, direct measures of mothers' verbal skills in this particular study. So a lot of researchers just said, okay, it's about SES. But again, we know if we're trying to think of SES, we know that that there are, if we try to break that apart, is it parent education or just parent skills, which are going to be correlated a bit with genetics, of course, in the child, or is it, what is this role of sort of family income and stress? And this is where developmental psychology comes in with some different theories around stress from family income, as well as just sort of the resources that income brings the role of parent education and their skill sets, those have obviously have an underlying genetic component. So sort of wanting to partial those out to understand the actual influence of, of other environmental experiences. So a lot of researchers look at SES, and in fact, sometimes they do break it apart. And this is just across learning and achievement in general, and even other measures of development. And oftentimes, the conclusion drawn is it's really about parent education. More highly educated parents are likely to have higher incomes, but it's really the parent education that's more important than the income per se, especially when you're looking at these types of measures that are not based on, say, like things that cost money in the home environment, like specific toys or educational experiences. We were literally looking at parents interacting with children with a set of toys that were given to them. It was really just about that observational interaction. And usually the conclusion is it's parents' education. And in fact, my co-author and I have 
talked a lot about this. It seems like these general measures of cognitive stimulation, of which there are a lot, like looking at parents interacting with their children and seeing sort of generally how much are they trying to teach the child in this interaction, et cetera. Those measures seem very correlated with parent education. We found that to be the case here. We also had a general cognitive stimulation measure. It was very much tied to mother's education, mother's verbal skills. I've seen this in other data as well. The novel aspect of this study is we had a separate measure of sort of math-specific support. So using certain math terms, identifying certain math concepts that were occurring in the same interaction. And of course, it was a little related to general cognitive stimulation, but it was also looking at different things. And that was really tied to family income, which was a surprise to us. It's also a bit hard to explain. I mean, the the conclusion you can draw is, is there something about the stress related to family income that would impact concepts and vocabulary and language use that was used? Or is it something else going on there? Hard to know exactly. We can kind of only speculate. But that was a big finding that we were surprised to find, that there were these sort of two pathways to children's math skills at school entry. One, through mother education and verbal skills. These mothers were more cognitively stimulating and sensitive with their children at age three. These children had higher math skills at kindergarten entry. Separately, higher family income or was related to higher use of these math concepts. And this was related to math skills, but it wasn't converse pathways. It wasn't family income to cognitive stimulation and sensitivity to children's achievement and vice versa. It wasn't parent education and verbal skills to their math support to the children's achievement. So it's sort of these separate pathways. And we're still trying to figure out exactly, obviously the study needs to be replicated in larger samples. The data just hasn't existed to this point to do that, but there's a lot of possibilities to sort of try to figure this and tease this apart because it does differ from some of the other research that said, well, it is about SES, but it's really about parent education of the SES measures included. I know you did this study looking at, at videos of, uh, of mothers working with their children, and so obviously that's a focus, but the, f- the father's role is either different or you need another study with fathers yes. interacting with their children to, to maybe see if there's a correlation there as well? Yes, first, definitely at this age. And there, ha- there is research, um, some of which that I've done, um, looking at fathers at either older ages, like in first grade is the study that I worked on. And there also is research on fathers supporting math development at earlier ages as well. And there is definitely also evidence of the fact that fathers support their children in different ways. There's also some evidence of gender differences of um, in terms of fathers supporting their daughters versus their son's math skills. And so there's definitely some interesting stuff there. Yeah, we didn't have fathers in this particular interaction to include, but research in general and fathers has found their support is also very predictive of children's skills. And also they tend to support their children's skills in different ways than mothers. So that's an important consideration and important point. Well, now having gotten this far and identified these issues, uh, where do you go next in looking at other issues that are related or is it up to others to start (laughs) probing? Because I know researchers can only go so far in some instances and before another discipline needs to take it over. 
Well, of course, there's a lot of interdisciplinary work going on in this area in neuroscience. Um, there's some exciting work looking at how income contributes to differences in children's early learning and development. Definitely some other disciplines are playing some really complementary roles right now in establishing these pieces of information. I think that though in these sort of more specifically in my research and, and other complementary research by colleagues in this in this specific area, I think that really teasing apart, trying to understand the role of family income versus education is an important next step. Also trying to use this research to identify specific remedies, what sort of interventions might work, what sort of avenues for those interventions could take place. Understanding broader the broader impacts of policy are important as well. In terms of the research side, though, I think, frankly, replicating this work in other samples, this was a relatively small sample, so sort of larger, more diverse samples, also, just for the aspect of replication is important. We made this big understanding around the importance of cognitive stimulation in the home environment and now continuing to try to unpack that and understand what are the specific aspects of cognitive stimulation that are important. And that information is really needed to be able to design programs and interventions. So I think there's a lot of work to be done in that kind of continuation of understanding the specific ways that parents do help their children learn and also then simultaneously how do we help parents, teachers, early care and education providers to work those specific aspects into everyday environments. Very interesting stuff. I mentioned at the top of the show that uh, this is a unique fall semester for the University of Connecticut, but it's not the only time we've had adversity and challenges during the fall semester. Let's hop in the uh, Tom's History Corner machine. Uh, we can't say Wayback Machine because it's copyrighted. Let's hop in the uh, Tom's uh, <laughs> History Corner machine and head back to September of 1938. And here's where we would drop in the sound of Bob Dylan singing Here Comes the Story of the Hurricane, but that's also copyrighted, so we can't do that. September 1938 was, I believe, the worst hurricane in Connecticut State history. This is a famous uh, hurricane that hit the entire Northeast killed hundreds of people, did uh, millions and millions of dollars of damage in 1938 money. Very famous uh, disaster. It came to UConn the first week, right before classes started. Now, back then, classes started at the end of September, and they would go through mid-June. So the schedule's a little different now. But at the time, classes were due to start on September 23rd. Registration was supposed to be September 22nd, and September 21st is when the hurricane arrived. Yay! Yay! <laughs> um... <laughs> So the interesting thing about this is a movement had already begun. So there were already students on campus and there were already students still coming to campus. And this is back, I mean, obviously there were no cell phones, but even like telephones were, were kind of hard to come by, especially during a hurricane. So people just kept coming to campus. The Daily Campus, the Connecticut campus, published during this, incredibly, on a hand-cranked mimeograph machine. <laughs> but their first issue on the, the real printing press was in October after the storm. And they talked about how there was one group of students that had gone out of its way to avoid the part of the Connecticut River. They were coming from west of the river, and they had gone like 50 miles out of their way to avoid the parts that were impassable. Wow. And, th and when they got close to campus, the Willimantic River was impassable, so they had to take off their clothes <gasps> and wade through the Willimantic River to get to campus. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, they just, like, so left their car on the other side? Did they have cars? Yeah, they came by train. Oh. So uh, 
Nearly 2,000 trees on campus came down. Some of them were centuries old, including the trees in the... There was an oak grove where mm. uh, the, the early commencements were held. Yeah, we mentioned that a few times. Yep, all gone. Oh. Obviously, power was out, phone was out. The account of it in the paper is, is really interesting. Um, th- this is very atmospheric. Quote, Men are picking up the broken glass from the hothouses, armory, skylight, and windows. Chimneys are being rebuilt. Shingles unruffled and ventilators replaced. Slate, which hurtled from roofs like machine gun bullets, <laughs> is is being pulled out of walls. Trees are being pulled up in an attempt to salvage a little the gale-marred beauty. One very enterprising student at the time, Ron Rast, he rigged up a shortwave radio to get messages out of uh, stores to parents. The antenna on campus that had existed for the, the radio station incredibly had not blown down. So he used two batteries, one that was pulled out of someone's car to set up the amateur radio, and he sent word. The state had set up a disaster headquarters. He was able to get word to them about the campus's need for water. Uh, he contributed stories to the Hartford Current via shortwave radio. Uh, he sent about 40 messages to parents, and some of them were received as far away as Maine and Pennsylvania. So the campus really pulled together, and here's the amazing thing. First day of classes, September 23rd, they had classes. Wow. So there's no power. There's no phone. There was a, a fear of food shortage and water shortage, and they still went ahead and had class anyway. That that is the, the that Yankee is Yankee spirit. ingenuity. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you think about. I know how spoiled we are with you know. I, I joke that like this is the best time we should have to be home and whatever because we have everything at our fingertips. Even the recent tropical storm, like you look on the internet, even if your power's out, you have your hotspot for a little while on your phone or whatever, like you can find out what's going on to be remote. Think about how remote UConn even is now with the interstate highway 10 minutes down the road. Like how I can't even imagine in this time when there's no highways and you're waiting across a river to get there and you're like, hey, we need water. Let's make a radio to (laughs) broadcast that. This is insane. This is why our grandparents and and elders uh, considered it very... Very soft living after yes. what they went through. We're a bunch of wimps. It's amazing. Yeah, it's it's impressive. And you know what? All I'll say is I'm really glad social media did not exist then. Because mm-hmm. can you imagine? Can you imagine? But I'll post some pictures of it. I mean, the campus it really looks devastated. Like it, I mean, the the slate from roofs being like shot into walls is. Cr- I mean, the, the storm. The by the time it got to Connecticut, the winds were 112 miles an hour. Oh. Which is, you know, the, the recent tropical storm, I think that the, the gusts were like 65 miles wow. an hour. So, like, That's almost twice as... terrifying. Yeah, this was, a, this was like a, a real sort of, you know, thousand-year storm kind of deal. A, a big event on campus history, and I just... Lo- oh, and also, I almost forgot, a great coincidence worked out in that most of the livestock on campus was at the Big E at the time. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, the, and, and Agawam did not get it nearly as bad, which is lucky considering it's so close to the river. Right. But uh, so most of the, the livestock was fine except for the chickens. Oh. 300 chickens died. <laughs> oh, you love talking yeah. about dead farming animals. <laughs> I really do. Uh and they also, um, lo- like, lots of uh, lab research was essentially gone forever, not just with the chickens, but they also had um, research structures that were set up, like, in, in the Yukon Forest and things, just completely destroyed. By what the were we called in this at this time? Were we Yukon This was uh, Con- Connecticut State College. Okay. And even though we had the uh, the Husky mascot hmm. by this time, by 1938, the, the, the teams were still called the Statesmen. Okay. And do we, we probably don't know how many about students we had. There were 1,050. Wow. So tiny little, tiny little place. 
Yeah, small small college, and uh, classes began at 8 a.m. on Friday, September 23rd, wow. just, despite the incredible devastation. Good for them. So, guys, you can wear a mask in class. Yes. Come on. Yes. Yeah, think about what, what your, your husky forebears or statesman forebears put up with. <laughs> You can you can wear a mask and uh, and avoid um, you know ridiculous no mask parties if they can build radios and, uh, <laughs> wade through raging rivers to get to class. I can't even imagine. Nope. Bye bye. No, I mean, I'm going home. I, just just an eight o'clock class to me when I was <laughs> undergrad was like that was a hardship. I slept through a lot of those. Oh yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that does it for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you learned a lot. Um, we hope you haven't had to wade through any rivers to go places. <laughs> Unless you want to, because, I mean, people do like that. Uh, if you'd like more of this, and who wouldn't, you can find us on Twitter.com, at Podcast or at Main underscore Old. I'll post some pictures there of the, um, the trees down on campus and some of the destruction from the hurricane. You can also follow me, for some reason, <laughs> at TJ Breen on Twitter. I always wonder, like, if people what they think when they follow us because it's not we don't tweet about normal things a lot of the time no i whenever whenever someone new follows me on twitter i just think to myself hello future unfollower yep you're in for a ride ken is just on tiktok so follow him (laughs) doing dances every day constantly yep (laughs) no um why don't we why don't we break up the switch it up yeah what would you like to to plug. It seems that the uh, the good music show has been extended into the fall semester on Saturdays from 3 to 6 at 91.7 WHUS in stores. UConn Sound Alternative as the pre-recorded programming is going to continue because of the limitations on, on access to our studios at the Student Union. But um, I'll be cranking out shows as well as the UConn 360 podcast, which is going to continue uh, as it has all summer for the first time. And we will continue with that. I'm in the process of organizing that for the fall semester. Julie? I'm at Julie Bartuka on Twitter. Um, I share my good share of Yukon news. So if you need a Yukon news fix, you know. Um, I have nothing else to talk about. I'm just happy to be here. It's nice out today, you guys. It's like 73. It's beautiful. I'm very happy. It is a beautiful day as we record this. And hopefully a beautiful day as you're listening to this 200 years in the future. Thanks, everybody, and we'll talk to you next time.